So maybe you're wondering about the title this morning, give me five. As we uh, look at this passage of scripture, we're in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And here's where that title comes from. Judy uses that phrase at school, give me five, when she needs to get the attention of her students. So each student is supposed to raise their hand, focus by not talking or working, and signal others to do the same. Now, there are multiple examples of this in use to help students listen and pay attention to what is about to be said. And so on the screen this morning, you're going to see an example of the five things each student is supposed to do while raising their hand. And it's just uh, five things. So they're supposed to have eyes that are watching, ears that are listening, mouths closed, body upright, and their hands are still. So that is... Uh, what it means to give me five. And so it's to get the attention of the students. Now, as, uh, as a fifth grader, I had a, a male teacher I really enjoyed. It was the first male teacher I'd had. And, um, and uh, so I really enjoyed that. But one of the ways that he would get the attention of students that were not paying attention in his class was uh, he would take a yardstick and he would smack it on the desk of the person who wasn't paying attention. So one day I was doing my work. I was writing like I was supposed to be writing, and he was walking by, and I wasn't really paying attention to what he was doing, but he took that yardstick and he smacked it on my desk. Scared me to death. I was like, what did I do? I thought I was paying attention. I was writing. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. And when I looked up with a startled look on my face, he wasn't even looking at me. He was looking at the kid behind me. So he knew that he wasn't going to be able to get there in time to get their attention, so he used my desk to get his attention. Whether he intended to get my attention or not, he had it from that point on. Boy, I was scared. But um, So I want you to think this morning, what are some ways that, uh, that our parents have tried to get our attention in the past? What are some things that they've done? I want you to think about that today. What are some ways that our teachers have tried to get our attention? And then, if you're a parent today, what, uh, what ways have you used? What certain things have you done to get your children's attention? So Moses had been shepherding his father-in-law, uh, father-in-law's flock for 40 years. And God had been training and preparing him to accomplish his plan, even though Moses was not aware of it. God used some Uh, something that went against the laws of nature to get Moses' attention. He had something very important to tell him, and he needed his full attention. When Moses saw the supernatural event, he stopped what he was doing and went to see what was going on. And what we're going to learn today as our big idea is that God is pleased when we pay attention to his calling. And so let's pray and just commit it to the Lord in prayer today. Lord, we come to you. We thank you that we can look into your word. We thank you that you call each and every one of us to a task, Lord God. You call us to do certain things for you. And Lord, I pray that we would be paying attention to what you're calling us to do today. I pray through this message, Lord God, that you might transform hearts and minds. I pray, Lord God, that that you might call some into ministry, full-time ministry, uh, in some way, shape, or form, Lord. Pray that you would call some into missionary work as well. That they would be obedient to what you're asking them to do, Lord. So please, Lord, I ask right now that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds 
that we would pay attention to what you're asking us to do today and what you want us to learn. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first point today is called, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. So if you'd look at those verses with me, if you would. This is what God's Word says. Now Moses was tending the flock of Yithro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so what we see happening here is Moses is just going about his daily routine. He's not doing anything special, just what he had always done, perhaps... uh, um, as he's watching Yithro's uh, flock, he, he'd been doing this for 40 years, as Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 30. Uh, Teresa read a little bit of that for you this morning. But it says this, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And so this was, uh, this was just uh, going to be another ordinary day for Moses, or at least that's what he thought. And... Um, one commentator, Wearsby, he says, it's significant that God calls people who are busy. Gideon, Gideon was threshing grain in Judges chapter 6. Samuel was serving in the tabernacle, 1 Samuel chapter 3. David was caring for sheep um, in, in chapter 17, verse 20. Elisha was plowing in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. Four of the apostles were managing their fishing business in Mark chapter 1. And Matthew was collecting taxes in Matthew chapter 9. Now, God calls us when we're busy doing all kinds of jobs, from farming to serving in ministry to shepherding to fishing and collecting taxes to so much more. God calls all kinds of people to serve him. Now, we're not told why Moses led the flock to the far side of the desert. Perhaps he was looking for more pasture lands to feed the flock. Maybe he was getting a little sparse around uh, his, uh, uh, his father-in-law's um, region that he lived in. Maybe he needed a change of scenery after 40 years. He's like, ah, waking up today. Here we go again, taking these sheep and and goats out. But I believe it was the Spirit of God prompting him to go because the time had come for God to rescue his people. Moses traveled all the way to Horeb, the mountain of God. So you kind of see where that is. He was kind of on the eastern side of, of the Sea of the Red Sea, right? See, I can't remember which sea that is. Anyhow, he's on that eastern side. He's already crossed over, and he's like going into the desert on the far side of the desert. And so the, the word Horeb actually means desert. And so the place where Moses took the flock can also be translated as the backside of the desert or the west side of the wilderness, When Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them to the same place, but it was referred to as Mount Sinai at that point. So Horeb may may be the mountain range or region, 
And Mount Sinai may be the specific peak in that range or region. So referring to it as the mountain of God is the author's way of remembering what happened there with the burning bush and the Ten Commandments later on. But it hadn't happened yet. That hadn't been established yet. But the author, Moses here, as he's writing, is just remembering this place that I went to was where I met God. This was a mountain of God. And now that God uh, had Moses right where he wanted him, he needed to get his attention. And so he uh, arrests his attention in verses 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire within a bush. Moses had seen fire before, and he'd probably used this kind of bush to start a fire while he was tending the flocks. The only difference is that when he used this kind of bush to build a fire, the bush was consumed completely and burned to ash. And so that's what intrigues Moses. That's what catches his attention. He saw this bush was not turning to ash, but remained a complete bush. That was something new that he'd never seen before. So he's like, i got to go over and check this thing out. Something supernatural was taking place with this burning bush. And so our first principle today is simply this. God is in control of his creation. God was the one who was temporarily suspending the fire's natural property to burn wood. God was in control of that. He can do anything that he wants to. He's all-powerful. And as we'll see... Um, God was in control of his creation during the plagues in Egypt, as we get to that eventually, and the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. Nothing is impossible for God. He's in control of his creation even today. So I want to encourage you to take time today to just worship God for being in control of his creation. That's the kind of God that we serve. We should be excited about that. God made sure that the bush was not burning up. Moses needed to have this closer look at this amazing phenomenon. So he decides to go over and see this strange sight, which is exactly what God needed him to do. That was the point in the bush not burning up. He's like, I need to get Moses' attention. And so as he goes over there, we see that our second principle today, that God will arrest our attention when he wants to speak to us. Now, God showed up. In, an unexpected, in unexpected ways from the lives of several people in the Bible. He showed up to Moses in a burning bush. He wrestled with Jacob by the Javok River. He appeared to Ezekiel in a vision by the Kavar River. He sent his angels to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. He arrested Saul, who later became Paul, on the road to Damascus with a bright light. Isn't God creative? Isn't that cool how he just uses so many different ways to get our attention? Stewart, in his commentary, says, God often uses various sorts of circumstances to begin to bring someone closer to himself. God may use a layoff at work to get our attention. We're so consumed with work. And he's like, I need to talk to you. I need to get your attention. You need a break. You may not think that. God may use an illness to slow us down so that we'll listen to his voice. If we don't stop and listen, he might just put us flat on our back. And then he says, here's what I want you to know. God may use visions and dreams to speak to us. We just heard about that yesterday um, at Uprise Music Festival. We got to hear in the pastor's tent, we got to hear a pastor sharing about an organization he works with, and he was just in Iran. And he said, it's amazing. Like the, The Muslims there are having visions and dreams of a man in white, and they're being told who to go, the Christian in their area, who to go to to find out about this man in white. Isn't that amazing? 
So he uses visions and dreams to speak to us. God may simply speak so clearly to our spirit that it seems like we have heard an audible voice. God may speak through family and friends confirming his plan and purpose for our lives. God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. God is so creative and in control of his creation that he may use some supernatural phenomenon to get our attention. And so has the Lord been trying to get your attention today? Or recently? What's he asking you to do? Is it something you know you don't want to do? Have you been obedient to his calling? I want to encourage you to do that today. Our first next step is this, and it, it helps us with our big idea that God is pleased when we pay attention to his calling. But first next step is to be attentive to God's calling and listen to what he's asking me to do. I'm going to tell you right now that if you are obedient to his calling, you're going to experience joy. You think you're happy now. Not doing what he's asked you to do, wait until you are obedient to his call. You will experience such joy. So what is God doing to get your attention? As Moses was uh, moving towards the burning bush, God spoke to him. We see God's call here. God called to Moses from the burning bush. He used Moses' name twice. Stuart N's commentary goes on. He says, in ancient Semitic culture, addressing someone by saying his or her name twice was a way of expressing endearment. That is affection and friendship. Thus, Moses would have understood immediately that he was being addressed by someone who loved him and was concerned about him. God used this same pattern throughout the Old and New Testaments. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, he says, Abraham, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 46, verse 2, he says, Jacob, Jacob. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Samuel, Samuel. In Luke chapter 10, verse 41, he says, Martha, Martha. Jesus speaks to her. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, He's calling one of his disciples, Simon, Simon, go see Saul. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, he says, Saul, Saul. Has he called your name twice? Do you know that God loves you? He's concerned about you? He wants to speak to you today? I'm hoping that you respond the same way that Moses did. He said, here I am. He knew that someone who loved him had addressed him. He was ready to listen to what this person had to say. Are you ready to listen to what God has to say to you? Will you respond the same way as Moses when God uses your name twice? Here I am. And then God gave Moses two commands. He says, don't come any closer. Moses had to stop approaching the burning bush. However close he was, was all the closer he was going to get. So hopefully he was able to see what he wanted to see in this bush that wasn't burning up. And then the second thing God commands him to do is to take off his sandals. Um, Alexander says this, in the ancient Near East, the removal of footwear was a sign of respect, signifying an attitude of humility. Joshua was commanded to do the same thing, as we'll see eventually in Joshua chapter 5, verse 15. The angel of the Lord's army came to him and says, hey, you got to take off your sandals, you're on holy ground here. But in both of these instances, it was more than just respect and humility. There was a reason for these two commands. 
God explains that the reason Moses has to stop approaching and take off his sandals is that the ground around the bush is holy ground. It was sacred ground because of the presence of God. Hamilton in his commentary says this, If God can transform unholy ground into holy ground by the glow of his presence, might he not also be able to transform an unholy life? What God can do with the uh, Adama, which is ground, might he not also do with the Adam, which is man? Do you see? It's, that's just one letter off in the Hebrew. So our third principle today is this. God is able to transform an unholy life. The normal, ordinary ground on Mount Horeb was transformed into holy, sacred ground by God's presence. God can do the same thing with normal, ordinary human beings when we allow Him to come into our lives. His presence in us transforms us. God's Word tells us that every human being is unholy from birth. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12 tell us this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's us. That's our natural state. But God had an incredible love plan before he even created the world or sent Jesus from heaven to earth. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew what he was going to do about this sin problem that we had, even before we had a desire to be in a relationship with Jesus. This plan was foretold hundreds of years before he even sent Jesus to fulfill it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, they're talking about Old Testament scripture. The verse says this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's talking about Old Testament there. And that he was buried and then he came alive again the third day according to the Scriptures. All of this was foretold and God said, when it's time, I'm going to send Jesus. And over 2,000 years ago is when he did that. And Jesus died on the cross to take our punishment for sin, to erase the debt that we had with God, that sin debt that we can't take care of on our own. And God has already placed his word in our mouths and hearts. And when we accept it, we'll be saved. That's what Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 10 tell us. That's the step we have to take. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you, are, that you confess and are saved. God does not require us to clean, to clean up your life before you invite him in. It is his presence in you that transforms you from unholy to holy. His Holy Spirit living in you changes your attitudes and desires. Evidence of a transformed life is a life that is, quote-unquote, cleaned up and pursuing the things of God instead of the things of this world. And so today is the day of salvation. If you've never taken that step, maybe you're ready to take the second next step today, and that's to invite God into my life so he can transform it. 
It's the presence of God that brings holiness, nothing else. It's not going to church every Sunday. It's not giving to the poor. It's not doing good things, because none of us do good things all the time. It's the presence of God living in us. The Holy Spirit that transforms that unholy life into a holy life. Now, we're still going to make mistakes because we're human. And I'm looking forward to the day when Christ returns because, boy, I'm going to experience true holiness. My body will be transformed to be like Jesus' body. I hope you're looking forward to that day. So God transformed the ground around the bush into holy, sacred ground. Moses obeyed the Lord's commands by stopping and removing his sandals. And you see, God is pleased when we pay attention to his calling. The voice from the bush, the burning bush, identified itself then. The person who had commanded Moses to stop and take off his sandals was the true and living God, the God of his ancestors. He was not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also of Amram's God, Moses' father. Moses understood who God was, which is why he reacted the way that he did. We see it in the second half of verse 6. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. McKay says, confronted by this burning display of God's holiness, he is profoundly aware of his own sinfulness and insufficiency. He's like, I can't look on God. I'm a sinner. We see that with the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, listen to these words. In the year of King Uzziah, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among, the peop- uh, live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, <clears throat> the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> then one of the seraphs uh, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah recognized who God was. And he was fearful. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, we see this. When I saw him, this is John writing, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So God got Moses' attention and told him who he was. Now it was time to explain why he needed Moses' attention. We see that in our second point today, which is concerned. Look at verses 7 to 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up to a land out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so it's interesting here, if you look at verse 7, there's a certain order in which God says this. He says, I have seen and heard. So God tells Moses that he saw the misery of his people in Egypt, but he also heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. God is concerned about his people's suffering. Stewart says our faith is challenged like Moses to trust that God has always uh, and continues to be concerned about their suffering since in the present fallen world, God allows suffering. It's not that he, has, he was not concerned up to this point. As we talked about last week, it was now God's timing to act. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, we see, beginning of verse 13, we see um, uh, this promise uh, to Abraham. I'll get out the right guy. Uh, yeah, so listen to these verses. Again, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to him, that's Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I don't want you to miss that. God's timing had nothing to do with what was going on with the Israelites in Egypt. It had everything to do with the Amorites' sin that must have finally reached its full measure after 400 years. This was something outside of, of their entire purview. <clears throat> Principle four is, is this. God is concerned about his people's suffering. He's concerned about your suffering whether it involves relationships, employment, health, finances, or spiritual matters, God is concerned. He has seen what you are going through and has heard your cries for help. He has not forgotten about you or neglected you. We see these truths from God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But God... Uh, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we see salvation for a loved one addressed here. And in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, we read these words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So maybe you're not understanding God's answer to your prayers yet. But he is sovereign and in control of everything, so just trust him. He's not going to be too late. He's not going to be too early. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for. So God answers our prayers in three ways. Yes, no, or wait. 
he may have answered no to your request or wait. So our third next step today is this, and that's just to trust that God is concerned about my suffering and will come to my aid. God saw, heard, and was concerned about the Israelites' suffering, and he came down from heaven to rescue them. That's what we see in verse 8. God had come down from heaven to rescue the Israelites. He was in the flames of the fire within the bush. He was not far away and distant from them. They were no longer going to suffer at the hands of the Egyptians. We know that God is with us too through his spirit. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Paul, writing to the Ephesian believers in chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, Say this, and you also were included in Christ when you, were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Then Paul, writing to the Roman believers in chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, say this, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And so God was going to bring them up to a good and spacious land. He was going to return them to Canaan. And we know that that was the good and spacious land that he was referring to. It's described here as flowing with milk and honey. And this reference was letting Moses know that the land was plentiful. There was plenty of grassland for their flocks and plenty of fruit and produce like grapes and dates, figs and carob fruit. Alexander says this, since explicit references to honey produced by bees are rare in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word uh, devash, often translated honey, in this context is more likely to refer to the sweet syrup produced from grapes, date, uh, dates, figs, and fruit of the carob tree, called dibs in Arabic. So if you have dibs on something, I guess it's actually just something from carob tree. God forewarned Moses that the promised land was already inhabited. The residents of Canaan were six different nations. The Canaanites lived on the coastal plain in the valley of Jezreel. The Hittites probably were immigrants from Asia Minor. The Amorites lived in the hill country east of the Jordan. The Perizzites were perhaps peasantry in central Palestine. The Hivites were in the north in Shechem and Gibeon. And the Jebusites were the people of Jerusalem. They lived in the city. Stewart says, by mentioning the six or seven Canaanite-Amorite groups, God both clarified for Moses exactly which territories he planned to give to his people and proleptically identified the future enemies in the war of conquest fought by Joshua. God mentions again that he is aware of what's going on. In verse 9, he reverses the order. He says, I've heard and I've seen. So he just reverses it here. Um, 
God heard their cries, and he saw the way the Egyptians were oppressing them. And then in verse 10, he says, go. God reveals his plan to Moses. He's sending Moses to Pharaoh as his advocate and deliverer. Moses will lead the Israelites out of Egypt. How does this apply to us? God's deliverance was a long time coming. 400 plus years. Our, fourth, our fifth principle is this today. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. That comes right out of Hamilton's commentary. I'm sure that the Israelites felt that God's silence meant uh, he had denied their cries for help, but that was not the case. There were circumstances at play that the Israelites were not aware of. God was waiting for the sin of the Amorites to reach its full measure. God's delay had nothing to do with the suffering of the Israelites. But we always feel that way, don't we? We're in the middle of it. Something going on. Something I'm doing wrong, right? Why isn't God answering this prayer? Perhaps you're feeling the same way as the Israelites did, but don't be discouraged or frustrated by God's delay. He hasn't forgotten about you and your suffering. There may be some circumstance at play that you're not even aware of that has nothing to do with you. The delay may have, like I said, have nothing to do with you and your suffering. God has seen your suffering and heard your cries for help, and he will come and rescue you. Wait patiently on him. So as we review, do you need to be attentive to God's calling and listen to what he's asking you to do? Are you ready to invite God into your life so he can transform it? Can you trust that God is concerned about your suffering and will come to your aid? As a body of believers, we need to be attentive to God's calling and listen to what he's asking us to do. We can trust that God is concerned about our suffering and will come to our aid. I want to conclude with one commentator's um, story about how he came into ministry. Before going into ministry, into the ministry, I taught junior high school science for 10 years. I thoroughly enjoyed those years, but I remember vividly a restlessness developing in my heart over the final two years. I began offering Bible studies for the students who were interested during the lunch hours. God confirmed to my spirit that there would soon be a transition in my life. Then came what I would consider to be my quote-unquote burning bush encounter. Driving home, I had, I had to pass the Forest Home Mortuary and Cemetery every day just off the Interstate 10 Freeway in Southern California. This day, however, was going to be a little different. I found myself taking the off-ramp toward the cemetery, just wanting a little solitude before I went home. At the end of the main drive, I came directly in front of a massive mosaic of the Lord's Supper. I climbed out of my car, walked to one of the wire chairs in front of the biblical portrait, and began to pray. It was at this moment God said, to me about as clearly as anyone will ever hear the voice of God speaking in the depths of their soul, it's time. I want you to leave teaching and preach my word. With tears on my face, I received the call of God into the ministry, a call that I have at times doubted and struggled with, but nonetheless, a call to serve him. Isn't that amazing how God can just use something, at, what, as just a mural, a mosaic? in a cemetery, but he was arrested, right? His attention was arrested by God, and he paid attention to the calling of God, and he heard the voice of God out of a mosaic, not a burning bush, right? He heard the voice of God as plain as day. 
that this is what he wanted him to do, and he was obedient. I hope that you will listen to the voice of God in whatever supernatural way he speaks to you, and that you'll be obedient to him and do what he's calling you to do. As you think about that, the ushers are going to prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards. The worship team is going to come. And would you just bow your heads with me? God Almighty, we just stand in awe of who you are. God, you are all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're ever-present with us. There is nothing that takes you by surprise. Lord, we thank you that you call to us, maybe in a still small voice, maybe in a supernatural way. We're grateful for that. Lord, help us not to miss it. Help us to pay attention. Help us to be obedient. So Lord, we just commit ourselves to you now. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.